Welcome to this special episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Most of our shows are uh, evergreen medical topics that could be aired at... uh, any time and still be relevant. Uh, this one might be relevant at any time, but it's especially relevant now because we've had some listeners ask us to cover the whole coronavirus infection and epidemic problem that's going on now. So as with our other episodes, this one will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. And to make sense out of this novel coronavirus outbreak, we have our favorite doctor, doctor, infectious disease specialist and public health physician coming on today. Dr. Paul Carson on short notice has graciously offered to be with us and we will glean great gobs of wisdom from him soon. And before we get to the interview, we kind of wanted to set the stage a little bit regarding this novel coronavirus, Um, a little bit about what we know about it and some of the data. So this has been primarily a respiratory, upper and lower respiratory infection, although some some folks have complained also of of diarrhea and other other symptoms. And the thought is, is it started in China. Um, That's where the first cases were reported. Um, But kind of went unrecognized as something totally unique for really a month or two before people keyed up to the fact that this was actually potentially a new viral strain. Yes, and coronaviruses have been around for for many, many years. I mean, corona comes from the Latin word for crown or halo. That's right, because of the shape of the virus, right? Right. If you look at it under an electron microscope, and um, we're still waiting for the fir- have the first one on our block, but if we had one, you would see something that looked like a little halo. And in fact, the sun has been spoken of as having a, a corona. Like if you block out the sun, there's this, this halo of light around it that makes that appearance. So that's... Uh, it actually has nothing to do with a beer that's sold south of the border uh, by a similar name. <laughs> uh, apparently, there are memes out there about that, but that's not what we're going to talk about today. Uh, in fact, the coronavirus is the second most common cause of the common cold. So there are multiple strains of the coronavirus, and one does not equal another. That's right. And so the, the whole key about this one is that it's a novel coronavirus, and it's one that's got you know, as we're going to talk with Dr. Carson, potentially more contagiousness about it. Right. And and novel doesn't mean a a paperback book that you read. Novel (laughs) just means it's newly identified. And so you're probably familiar with the flu virus and the fact that you need an influenza vaccine every year. Why? Because it changes so much. It mutates like crazy. Guess what? Coronavirus is in that same category. All, All the viruses are always throwing something new at us. And so this one has gotten an unusual amount of press, partially, I think, because of the, the casualties so far. And so we know a, a couple of days before this show airs is when we're recording that there's been well over 100,000 cases worldwide, well over 3,500 deaths, primarily in China, Iran, and Italy, but also in Japan. And those countries have got travel restrictions placed on them currently by the U.S. government. Yeah, in fact, later this uh, spring, uh, I'm taking my family on a pilgrimage to Europe, but we're not going to Italy. But I just checked the website of the company and uh, going to the Holy Land, things are restricted. Palestine has shut down all holy places, not Israel, but Palestine. I I had been talking to some friends who had uh, students studying abroad in Rome, and Italy has closed down every school in the whole country because of this this endemic over there. And so there's no school in Italy. Everybody, I don't know if they're going to restart or how long, but the study abroad students have all been pulled back home because of this. Oh my goodness. So it's it's something that people are rightly taking quite seriously. Uh, it's not only having effects as far as public health, but also economic effects. Yes. Uh, for people who follow the stock market, for example, we've seen huge plunges uh, in the last couple of weeks where it had been going quite strong and largely due to things like you, you've heard about the cruise ships where they're quarantined. Yes. The, the, the cruise lines and hospital, or not hospital, uh, hotel chains and stuff like that, they're really struggling. I know American Airlines canceled some 200,000 flights. And so you can imagine the economic burden that this is placing on folks who are trying to restrict the travel of this virus. Yeah, the head of Southwest Airlines said today on the day that we're recording this that it has a post-9-11 feel to it in terms of how many people are flying. 
Man, see, and that's that has trickle down effects. So I I think there's a lot to be said here. We we definitely want to focus primarily today on the public health implications and really thinking about it as as just many of our conversations, even with patients already this this past week. What are my risks? How do I think about this? And what should I do to protect myself and my family? Now, by the end of February this year, the United States has already seen 49 million cases of influenza. That is a four-syllable word. It's not the one-syllable word, the flu, because flu sounds like something that's not a big deal. Last week, I had influenza for the first time. It knocks you over. It's in, incredible. So it, it's bad juju. I don't ever want to have it again. <laughs> it, it is kind of interesting for me because, you know, you get to talk to so many different people when you're seeing patients. And a lot of folks might say, you know, yeah, I think I had the flu a couple of weeks ago, but it wasn't too bad. <laughs> and, I, and I usually caution them and say, you know, if you think you had the flu, you probably did not have the flu. Right. You probably had another common cold, another one of the thousands of viruses. But influenza is something to write home about. And it, it usually... And to stay home with. <laughs> it, it, stops, it stops your life for a good week, you know. Yes. And yes. so that's... Actually, the, the flu statistics, I think, Tom, we were talking about before the show, it's, it's an interesting thing to help put the coronavirus fears in context as well. Because in the United States, in the same period of time, there have been 250 cases of coronavirus with 11 deaths compared to uh, 52,000 deaths due to influenza. And uh, as Andrew found before the show, 23 million visits to physicians so far this year in the United States for influenza. So influenza, as of right now, you know, there's there's been, what is that, 15 times more, fifth, or 150 times more deaths, you know, than, uh, than for... 500 times more 500. in the United States. See, so you're the math guy. That's why we bring <laughs> you along, Tom. So a, a bajillion times more deaths. And, and as Andrew pointed out, in World War I, there were 50,000 deaths by, of American soldiers. But how many Americans died of Spanish flu that year? Right. Way more. 600,000. 600,000. So 12 times more. And so it's, it's interesting trying to separate kind of the, what you see on the news and, and a lot of the fear that is brought up through social media and whatnot with the actual statistics. And, you know, if I had a nickel for everybody who doesn't want to get the flu shot, but uh, they're scared of the coronavirus, <laughs> you know, as of right yes. now, that, that doesn't seem like a position that seems rationally founded. The flu has already done way more damage and annually does way more damage than the coronavirus has done. There is some, some reason to be afraid of what could be coming, but that we are going to sort out with our good friend, Dr. Carson. So this virus has an official name, and it's SARS-CoV-2, or Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome-Related Coronavirus Number 2, because you might have heard of SARS several years ago, and that was from yet another coronavirus. So SARS-CoV-2 is the name of the virus. The name of the disease is abbreviated COVID-19, or Coronavirus Disease, the 2019 version. All right. Very good. So now we understand what that is because I was wondering too. And the first coronavirus was actually isolated in 1937. And it typically has come from uh, various animals, camels, cats, bats. In fact, I think this one has probably come from uh, bats. And, uh, you know, it's thought that they're responsible for 10 to 30 percent of colds worldwide. And doesn't seem to cause as much pneumonia as other viruses. In other words, it seems to be more in the upper respiratory tract, the throat, bronchi maybe, than the lungs itself. Which is generally good because usually the lower respiratory infections have more health problems and more mortality. Good. And, and the coronaviruses as a family seem to follow a similar seasonal pattern like influenza does. And so to, to some extent, you know, one of, one of my goals or desires in, in probing this topic with, with you and Dr. Carson, Tom, is hopefully to shed some light on rational versus irrational fears regarding the coronavirus. Right, because it seems like sometimes the media might be trying to sell a story more than imparting just the facts. Correct. And I, and I, I wonder, too, if, if part of the reason that this is such a big issue, I mean, hitting on the economic side of things, is just the, the fear of the economic you know, results of this, if if things that are manufactured in China get slowed down even for a month, whether they be drugs or textiles or what have you, then that, that can lead to more trouble. It's actually, it's interesting. I, I was reading just yesterday about, uh, 
I think it was a McDonald's or Starbucks or someplace like that in Japan where you'll get your coffee and on the coffee it's got the name of your, your server, your barista or whatever, and their body temperature. Oh, my goodness. And so that's printed on the side of your, your order. So, you know, so-and-so fixed up my meal, and they're not infected. So that that's what they're kind of doing over there in the East right now. Who knows if that comes to the States, but um, huh. that, it's that level kind of, of fear that we'd like to uh, calm and, and focus on the things that really we should be doing and, and should be worrying about. And there are a number of ways that this impact our lives as Catholics. So we have a number of questions that we are prepared to ask uh, Dr. Carson. He's seen them in advance, and he has marveled at the uh, depth of intrigue that I've put into the questions, but he has offered to do his best. But before we get him on the phone from far away in North Dakota, we have our trivia question, which is uh, a simple true and false trivia question, and that is true or false. Most listeners to this show have been infected with a coronavirus. Ooh, 50-50. True or false. We'll be back with Dr. Carson here on Dr. Doctor after the break, coming to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio. Welcome back, and we have with us our special guest, Dr. Paul Carson, MD, MPH. He's a professor in the Department of Internal Medicine with the University of uh, North Dakota School of Health Sciences. He's a professor in the Department of Public Health at North Dakota State University in Fargo. He specializes in public health management of infectious diseases. Sounds like a good fit for coronavirus. He also uh, works with the North Dakota Department of Health, and he's a state content expert on antimicrobial stewardship. Paul Carson, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Good morning, Dr. McGovern. Good morning, Paul. I'm glad to be with you. So, uh, yeah. We're glad to have you. You know, the boy who cried wolf. You know, that's what some of the media reminds me of right now regarding COVID-19 or the new coronavirus. But is, is the media crying wolf? Is it going overboard? Is it on target? Just in general, how would you state your understanding of the way the media is portraying things? As far as them crying wolf, I would kind of say yes and no. It's sort of the perfect thing for the media to have like daily reports of how many new cases and how many deaths and sort of feeding kind of this uh, beast of what the media wants is constant uh, crisis mode. But on the other hand, I think this is a very serious infection and, and a serious epidemic in most countries moving towards pandemic. And I do think it warrants uh, a lot of attention and a lot of uh, uh, preparedness. Can you give us some context? Because when we hear about something new and the media is ginning up fear, we get afraid. We, we don't have anything to compare it to. It's like this free-floating anxiety. So maybe one of the best things you could do is compare it to something we do know about, influenza. And when you were talking with me to prepare for this, you said there were two really key numbers that we need to know to understand this disease. That is the attack rate and the case fatality rate. That's right. So when we kind of look at uh, the potential for something to cause disease and cause significant morbidity and mortality, uh, those are a couple of key parameters we like to hone in on. And so uh, influenza is a really great uh, example to kind of compare things to, to put it in perspective. So on average, uh, influenza will infect and attack about 5 to 20% of the population in any given year. Um, so that's a lot. Uh, a lot of people yes. will get uh, influenza, and in fact, it's estimated that the average child will get influenza every other year, and the average adult will get influenza about once or twice every decade. Wow. Um, yeah, so that's a, a pretty big burden of disease. And then when you look at the uh, overall case fatality rate or mortality rate for influenza, it's about 0.1% of the population uh, that gets infected uh, will die of this. Of course, that's skewed uh, much more towards people who are older and people who have underlying uh, chronic medical conditions or, or diseases. So when you put that all together with influenza in the United States, we've got you know typically something like uh, you know, 30 million people infected each year, several hundred thousand hospitalizations, and on average about 35,000 deaths a year in the U.S. alone. You know, and, and, you know, what frustrates a lot of us in infectious disease is people kind of shrug about, well, maybe I'll get a flu shot this year, maybe I won't. It's about half the population doesn't get it that should get it. 
So kind of bear those numbers in mind, uh, uh, about, you know, 30 million infections, about, uh, you know, a couple hundred thousand plus hospitalizations, and about 35,000 deaths on average. Contrast that with um, the novel coronavirus. We, we don't know some of these numbers, but we're getting an idea here. So the attack rate, we don't know. Uh, we don't know what's the, the, the potential here for how many people are likely to be infected with this, although we're, we can get a little hint of it. So one of the ways we can get a hint of this is by looking at something we call secondary attack rates. So, for example, if someone in your house gets sick, what's the chance of your other family members or household members getting sick? With influenza, that's about 15 to 30 percent of your household contacts will get sick if one person is ill in the house. Wow. We now have some data with the novel coronavirus. It's about 3 to 10 percent, so Ooh. maybe five-fold less. Oh, um, very good. Uh, yeah. And um, similarly, there's some really good data that has just recently come out of uh, China that's looked at secondary attack rates in non-household contacts. So people who came in contact with a case, but it's in the workplace or it's you know in some social group, it's not in a household, there it's only about 1% to 5% of people who were close contacts, not in the house, uh, became infected. Now, are you defining looked- close contact? When I used to work in vaccine research, close contact was defined as face-to-face within six feet of each other. No. No, this is this is less than that. Uh, this this is like close contacts, meaning um, that that definition is a little bit different than what we do, like in the hospital setting, like what you're talking about. Okay. Um, this is for public health tracing, and it's like anybody who came in contact, you know, direct contact with that mean, person. Mean handshaking, uh, back slapping. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Or, you know, shared workspace and that sort of thing. Okay. Here, that secondary attack rate is only 1% to 5%, and that's probably a lot lower than influenza. So I don't think it's, it's shaping up to appear that it's probably significantly less contagious than influenza. That's the, great news, the second, right? That's the second parameter, good. Um, yeah. So that, that, you know, is a harbinger of hopefully good news that it can be contained, and the evidence coming out of China right now is that they are containing it, they, or they, I should say they're mitigating it. The, the numbers of new cases are a lot less. However, the, the big caveat here is that the mortality rate or the case fatality rate with the novel coronavirus is much higher than influenza. So uh, just again, influenza's overall case fatality rate is about 0.1%. Or one in a uh, thousand. One in a thousand. Uh, what we're seeing with uh, novel coronavirus is about zero point six to three point four percent. So maybe at best sixfold higher. So that's that's of significant concern. And then if you look at more specific groups that are at risk, like the elderly, I kind of did some quick numbers on this uh, this morning, looking at this. And the case fatality rate for People over the age of 65 with influenza mm-hmm. goes up to about 0.8% or 8 out of 1,000. Uh, it's about 9% with the novel coronavirus. So or 90 out of 1,000. Exactly. Wow. Yes. That's, so, that's a lot higher. So that's why, uh, that's why I think it is definitely of concern. Um, you know, you look at what happened in the nursing home in Seattle, and, you know, there was a number of deaths that uh, they think now about 10 of the deaths in in uh, Washington are ascribed to that uh, nursing home or contact with that nursing home. And how did that so, nursing home get it? Do you know, Paul? D- don't know yet. They're, okay. they're, the investigation is sort of ongoing with trying to understand how that got introduced there, most likely from a visitor sure. who either had traveled or was a contact of someone who had uh, you know, outside exposure and then brought it in there. Now, Paul, this morning I was at breakfast with a, a, a wise non-medical individual, and he said, well, now, would the case fatality rate be the same if people were getting it in the United States where we have the latest and greatest available in health care? Yeah, so I think those are good questions, and um, I I think we can get a hint of that uh, from what we're seeing in South Korea, which is the next biggest uh, center there. They have a pretty good health care, pretty good medical system. I think they're doing a lot more 
uh, testing. So that's the other big piece of the case fatality rate is what's the denominator? How many people right. are you actually screening and testing? Um, and in the early uh, part of the epidemic in China, they weren't testing mild cases. It was all hands on deck with very sick people coming to hospitals and clinics and uh, emergency rooms. So that's a narrower slice of the, you know, of the sicker um, in South Korea, I think they're doing probably a better job of screening a broader population, and there the case fatality rate is 0.6%. And I suspect that's closer to the truth. It might even be a little lower than that. But uh, that's what I sort of expect we're going to see here in the United States as well. When when do you expect this to really hit the U.S. full force? It seems like in in places in Italy and uh, Iran and and things like that, it seems like it really blew up pretty quickly. Should we expect something right. like that in the States, or is it going to be more this trickling in effect? Yeah, no, I, I think... I th- I think most of the experts on this at the CDC expects it's expect it's going to blow up similarly in the United States in the next one to two weeks here as these other countries that have seen more cases. It really uh, you know you have to kind of look at the numbers with a little bit of a grain of salt because it depends heavily on that country's ability to test and and actually in the United States we're pretty <laughs> limited right now. Uh, they're they're trying to crank out uh, new test kits, but it's there's not a lot. Uh, I've, I've you know heard the recent numbers here for us in North Dakota, and we've we've got maybe 50 test kits on hand and maybe a couple hundred by next week. So yeah. it's not nearly enough to yeah. really be looking uh, for. And, and it what like self-respecting virus it. is even going to try to breach your borders in North Dakota, Paul? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's I, too cold here. Exactly. <laughs> I I know over here. I mean they've they've been sending us sometimes daily emails here in Indiana about if you suspect someone, then you've got to call somebody who can then get permission to maybe use one of the test kits. And right. so there's a, I think there is a big barrier there for identification. Because nothing is. clinically is going to differentiate these people, is it, Paul? Nothing. No, I mean, this looks like any other sort of uh, respiratory tract infection of which we see lots and lots this time at, of at year. At what point so. is something an epidemic or a pandemic? Okay, so uh, epidemic uh, means that you have a higher incidence or a higher number of new infections than you typically would expect for that particular disease. Um, And and it's often referred to, it can be seasonal things like influenza, and it can be new things, uh, oftentimes a newer newer infection. But in its most basic term, epidemic means higher than expected numbers of cases. Okay. Pandemic, uh, which kind of comes from the Greek word pandemos, which means kind of everyone, yep. uh, means that it's uh, um, gone kind of global. It's it's in it's gone viral. <laughs> viral, right? <laughs> exactly. Gone viral, old um, school. Yep. <laughs> yeah, and so this means sort of worldwide uh, spread, and that it's happening. Um, in those countries, it's not just being imported that it that it's there's local spread within countries around the world. Yeah, you know, Paul, it seems like every couple of years we hear about something like this. You know, it was MERS and then it was SARS. Yeah. How how yeah. does this stack up against those? Does it seem like it's it's worse or it's going to be worse than those were? Yeah, mixed bag because of those two numbers we just talked about, the attack rate and the case fatality rate. So uh, it's closely related to both of those viruses, SARS and uh, MERS. Um, But those two viruses had a much higher case fatality rate. So Mm. uh, case fatality rate for SARS was around 11 12%. The case fatality rate for MERS is like 30 to 35%, so much uh, deadlier but their attack rate was way lower. Uh, these were not very contagious. Ah. Now, SARS uh, is another coronavirus, right? It is, and so is MERS, uh, both SARS and MERS. So they're all coronaviruses. respiratory syndrome, they're all coronaviruses, yeah. Okay, and uh, something I heard from, um, that has a husband who travels frequently to China, and I don't know if this is true, but air pollution is so bad there, you notice it in the cities after being there a few days. Mm-hmm. Does that chronic air pollution that's in their lungs make them more likely to develop infection and to have a worse infection? Yeah, that's a great question. And and it's actually one of my bright graduate students came to my office uh, just uh, yesterday 
asking that same question. <laughs> and, um, and here's the other piece uh, to that. So, so air pollution is really a big problem in China. Um, yes. And uh, you can do epidemiologic studies that show incremental increases in respiratory problems and chronic respiratory disease with uh, exposure to higher levels of air pollution. And a lot of those studies have been done in China. Ah. Here's the other piece of that is that um, smoking is really prevalent in China. They are the biggest Mm. consumer of tobacco in the world. Um, About 27% of the population smokes there. Uh, Way more men than women, about about 50 50 plus percent of men smoke. And a very interesting observation is that the mortality rate is, is just a little less than double in men than in women with the data coming out of China, which begs the question, is it something about being male or is it because there are a lot of smokers? Yeah. And I think it's, I think it's a very uh, reasonable question when you look at another uh, disease, um, invasive pneumococcal infection or pneumococcal pneumonia. Uh-huh. Um, smokers are way more likely to develop uh, uh, invasive pneumococcal infection than their non-smoking counterparts. About fourfold increased risk for active smokers who are otherwise healthy, and about a two-and-a-half-fold increased risk for people exposed to passive smoke uh, will get uh, they have about a two-and-a-half-fold increased risk of developing invasive pneumococcal infection. So if it can do that with a, you know, an infection like that, I would not be at all surprised that it makes people more, I don't know about more susceptible, but pro- I would think it's quite probable that it makes them uh, more likely to develop severe disease. Paul, we've got so much that we want to cover. Let's, uh, before the break, cover one or two more things quickly. And that is, what should make a listener suspect they might have coronavirus disease? So at this point in time, and this this will change quite, uh, I think it could change quite rapidly, but at this point in time, um, it would be if they have developed uh, evidence of a lower respiratory tract infection. And most of the uh, people who've had uh, the novel coronavirus have had a fever, uh, about 80 plus percent, a dry cough, the majority, um, fatigue, about a third or more. Uh, those have been the three most prominent symptoms, but it also can look just like a cold too. Right. Uh, but, but mostly I, I think that uh, fever and dry cough are kind of the most prevalent symptoms. And I think you know, of course, there's lots of that going around in the winter. Yes. Um, I think at this point we wouldn't... Um, we wouldn't be testing anybody with just those symptoms. It would need something more like uh, travel uh, yes. outside the country or exposure to a known case. We've been struggling here with uh, in our own state, like, you know, who are we going to offer these very limited number of tests to? And uh, right now it really needs more than just that respiratory illness alone. It needs some kind of epidemiologic exposure or we've said also we'll test healthcare workers because if they're bringing it into the workplace, sure. we want to we want to know. Um, I think once we get more widespread availability of testing, and there are a number of commercial labs that are trying to bring uh, tests online in the very near future, I think that criteria will expand to anybody who's got uh, significant. Are, are patients going to be treated any differently than influenza patients? Um, no. Uh, well. No, they won't be treated any differently. I, I think if we knew somebody had novel coronavirus, we would, uh, you know, if they're not if they're not particularly ill, we'd you know send them home. But we would give them, you know, a lot. Actually, as we would with influenza, if you're worsening, if you're getting short of breath, if your fever is unremitting, um, you may need to return to be evaluated. May need to even be hospitalized. Will Tamiflu help them? Unfortunately not. Tamiflu will not so, help. So there's no antivirals um, known that would help coronavirus infection? Well, um, there's no antivirals that are available uh, for um, uh, use at this time. However, there are several antivirals that have theoretic potential to treat this and are being studied uh, in late-stage clinical trials as we speak. There was, a, there was a drug called remdesivir, which was developed for Ebola, didn't work oh. that great against Ebola, but uh, um, theoretically, the way it works might have activity against uh, coronaviruses. And in in vitro, in the sort of test tube or in the lab, it does look like it has activity. And so, that's being studied. Uh, a company called uh, Gilead makes that, and um, uh, the the hope is is that that may have activity. And there's 
three or four other similar types of drugs that are in early phases of testing. So I, I think it's possible we actually may see um, a therapeutic agent that can work possibly within a few months. On that note, Paul, we're going to take a quick break here on Dr. Doctor and be right back with more after the break. And we're back with Dr. Doctor talking today, Dr. Paul Carson, about the coronavirus. And, you know, uh, Paul, one of the things we haven't really addressed uh, head on yet is how, how people catch this. How, how long does it take? Can they pick it up from just using a door handle that an infected person used? Can you give us some of those statistics? Sure. So uh, coronavirus looks to be um, like m- many, if not most, of the respiratory viruses that we uh, come across, um, similar to influenza, it's spread by respiratory droplets. So droplets are sort of larger particles that are kind of ejected from us when we sneeze or cough. Um, they travel about two to three feet and then kind of fall onto uh, you know the ground or, or surfaces near us. So we can become infected by those by direct contact with someone coughing or sneezing on us. We can come into contact with them by uh, touching people, shaking hands, etc., where it, you know, it's on, on the infected person's hands and then um, spread from hand to hand. And then we can uh, catch this as well by touching the surfaces that those droplets uh, land upon. Um, so all three of those are thought to be the most common ways. How long do the uh, droplets stay viable on those surfaces? Yeah, so there's been some nice studies that looked at other very similar coronaviruses, not this one to my knowledge in particular, but uh, other very similar ones. And it ranges from about two hours to nine days, depending <laughs> on the surface, depending on the temperature, and depending on how and the well, humidity. That's helpful. So, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Two to nine days. Pretty, so figure up to nine days. And and the the average amount of time to get sick after you were exposed, is that about five days? Is that right? That's correct. It takes, uh, on average, about five days from exposure to become ill. But uh, some of the evidence suggests it can be as short as two days and as long as two weeks. It does wow. not appear that it, it goes really beyond two weeks. Well, and I, I think some of these, these things, especially the idea of fomites or catching, catching the virus from not a person but an object, that has interesting repercussions for us as Catholics, especially as it pertains to the sacrament of the Eucharist. I know in our diocese and a lot of the dioceses throughout the country, the bishops have released new cautions and guidelines regarding the reception of the Holy Eucharist. I wonder if you were familiar with some of these or what you thought about them. Uh, you know, until you had kind of sent me some questions beforehand about that, it's not something that I'd heard yet or uh, thought about, although I should have. Uh, just to um, explain, too, the word you used, fomite, it's sort of an odd uh, term <laughs> that we use in infectious disease. Uh, a fomite is actually an inanimate object that can be a carrier of a pathogen. So, as you alluded to, like a door handle or a child's toy or a tabletop surface. Uh, Stuffed you know, animal. You could, uh, <laughs> Stuffed animal, right? Uh, the Eucharist potentially, or the chalice; those all could uh, serve as uh, fomites or uh, carriers uh, that uh, allow the virus to um, uh, be on that surface or or material, and then passed on to the, another person. Um, I think you know, you know we think about this a little bit during flu season, at least in our my my own church. Uh, oftentimes, uh, then you know during the peak of flu season, the pastor will have us forego the uh, handshake and uh, sign of peace. Um, they will often forego the chalice. I think those are reasonable uh, reasonable measures. Um, as we move more from containment, which is trying to stop it from crossing borders and going from city to city, I, I think we're moving past that to to the public health measures, which are called mitigation, which is trying to stop our local spread or decrease the number of secondary cases. Um, that really focuses more on uh, you know social distancing, um, not you know. Uh, having so many activities with large congregations of people and to try and decrease uh, spread to various fomites and that can be ongoing vectors. So, so I think... What do you think about holy about water fonts? Yeah. Should, yeah. should they you be know, drained? Should they be replaced <laughs> frequently? Should they yeah, be you know, avoided? It, until you asked about that, and that question is not something I thought of, but I, <laughs> I actually think that's a good idea. Uh, 
I, uh, you know, when you think of multiple people passing through a church, dipping their hands into that little yes. bitty uh, well of water. Uh, now, one thing I don't know is how well coronavirus survives in, in you know, um, air temperature water, but probably, probably pretty well. Right. And I would, uh, I would say that would be a good idea. Now, the and, one that really so- shocked me is dioceses where they're forbidding communion on the tongue. That's right, yeah. What do you think of that? Yeah, yeah uh, an- another one that I hadn't really thought carefully about until you guys, <laughs> bright guys, were asking about it. You know, when you prompted me with that question, I, I visited with my own pastor about this a little bit. I said, you know, do you, do you mind if I ask a somewhat indelicate question? And, <laughs> uh, you know, how often when you give the host on the tongue, do you, do you think you actually kind of bump up against a person's tongue or feel that, you know, you may have uh, some saliva that passes to your hand? And he said, you know, not very often, but it's maybe once every other mass or so. And um, and we do know that the virus can be detected in saliva. You know, normally we look at nasopharynx or the sure. you know, pharynx for, for culture, but actually I just uh, saw a study that found you can find significant levels of the virus in, in just saliva. So I, I think uh, it's reasonable to say, you know, that it's probably a low risk. I think that's probably a pretty low risk, but it's not unreasonable to say uh, for the during this particular time, this particular you know, concern about this pandemic that uh, we receive on the, in the hands. But how is that different than accidentally up? touching somebody's hands? Which good. Is- it's a good question. So uh, that it would depend, it would really, there it's sort of limited to just the priest or whoever's offering uh, the host as, as the person of concern. Although my pastor reminded me, he says, you know, I frequently will bump somebody's hand. Exactly. Uh, when, I'm, when I'm giving the host. So, you know, uh, Probably saliva is a little bit more readily able to kind of carry the virus than maybe just, you know, very brief touching of a minimal amount of skin. I I think it's a fair question to say really how much risk, differential risk is there between these. Who knows? We don't really know. But it's not unreasonable, I think, to say maybe preferential receiving on the hand. Well, and Paul, I mean, let's take this a step further, too, talking about even the idea of quarantine. You know, at what point are you too sick to go to church? At what point uh, when someone presents to me and says, how long should I be off work, skip school? Uh, At what point do schools close down? What do you think about all that? So so you're asking a question that sort of uh, introduces three concepts that are worth uh, clearly defining. So there's a difference between isolation, quarantine, and then public health measures for social distancing. And, and you, you know, in your question was sort of a mixture of all three of those. So isolation is when you remove a sick person from, you know, uh, uh, contact with other people. So if you, if you have a respiratory illness at this time, I, I, we would just highly encourage to uh, remove yourself from work, from social gatherings, from close contact with uh, many other people, and stay at home and, uh, until all symptoms are resolved. That's different than quarantine. So quarantine is removing somebody who's been exposed uh, to a known uh, infected person with the the disease in concern. So um, quarantine would occur with um, someone who had direct contact with someone with coronavirus. um, And and you're going to say, I'm going to remove myself from uh, close contacts with lots of people for the 14-day incubation period until I'm sure uh, I don't have it. Um, Beyond that is when public health starts to say we really should uh, do more measures to mitigate further spread, and that is trying to uh, cut down on or eliminate uh, um, settings and situations where there's uh, um, lots of gathering of lots of people, so schools. Uh, athletic events, concerts, um, and uh, uh, getting to the you know Catholic issue, church potentially. Um, I don't I don't think we're there yet. We're get, but we're getting close. Uh, you know, Seattle has closed a number of their schools and have recommended uh, uh, canceling athletic events. Um, I and I know that uh, here at my university where I work. We're talking about that almost every day. Like, when will that trigger get pulled? And uh, 
so those are those are kind of three concepts that um, have bearing on this question. Is that something we should probably anticipate at some point in America, though? I know in Italy they closed their schools at least for for a period of time. Is that probably coming our way? I think so. If not, uh, if not nationally, I think locally or regionally. I think when cities and states start to see um, uh, local spread, uh, uh, that that's going to be a uh, um, local public health uh, in conjunction with um, school systems to make that decision. I, I doubt that that would be made at a national level, but I think I think we can expect that soon in many different places at a, a local level. This is also affecting Catholics because Lent is often pilgrimage time. And I understand that just about all pilgrimages to Italy have been canceled. Uh, Palestine has closed all their holy places, such as the Church of the Nativity. Um, how is this reasonable? And if so, how long should something like this go on? In, in other words, what's the end point? Yeah. So I, I think um, I think for, you know, there's a couple different factors here. One is travel to a country that's experiencing um, higher rates of, uh, or higher levels of uh, spread and in the infection. So Italy's I think the, if I, if I remember right, probably still the the third highest uh, mm-hmm. country yes. for for this. Um, and so I think it's reasonable to say we're we're not going to go travel into the, you know one of the highest endemic areas for this right now. Um, that would be especially true, I think, if you are at higher risk for more severe disease. If you're over the age of 60, if you have underlying chronic medical conditions like diabetes or chronic lung disease or chronic heart disease. Um, you really, I think it's a good idea just not to be traveling at, at this time right now. Um, I, I, did you have a question with that? Uh, well, with with physician meetings, this is interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm planning a meeting that's going to occur in late March uh, at a mm. college in, in Kansas, and one of the people serving with me lives in Washington State. He's a plastic surgeon. So mm-hmm. this month, March 12th to 14th, the American Society of Plastic Surgery canceled their annual meeting in New Orleans. Meanwhile, my American Academy of Dermatology meeting a week later or so, March 20th to 24th in Denver, has not canceled and says they're just offering all these extra hand wash stations, etc. Yeah. How do we yeah. make sense out of canceling versus not canceling these meetings. Yeah, yeah. It's a tough call because uh, you're trying to balance uh, this risk of infection with pretty substantial uh, economic outcomes. Uh, You know, a lot of work, effort, planning goes into these big uh, conventions. Um, So it's a delicate balancing act. Uh, I think we are at the point where it is absolutely reasonable to be asking the question, is this event worth the potential risk because you have people coming from uh, for sure all over the country to a lot of these events and a lot of times all over the world um, and and you're putting them all in you know meeting rooms and combined spaces where lots of fomites getting uh, you know right. coughed and sneezed on and serving as potential vectors for spread so they are ideal situations to expose large numbers of people to the, the virus so I think it's absolutely reasonable to be asking that question. Um, it 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 be, you know where's the tipping point? You know yes. where, where do you have enough cases in the area? I don't I don't have a you know quick and easy answer to that. But I think with what we're seeing with spread now in multiple states, uh, you know we're seeing local spread in California and Washington, probably Oregon, New York. Um, I think it's it's very reasonable to be asking that question. Well, even on an individual level, I guess for for ourselves and many of our listeners, what what kind of things do you think is reasonable as far as putting restrictions on ourselves about going out or traveling? Uh, maybe for you and your family, what kind of restrictions would you put on yourself because of this? Yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, again, a tough question and one I'm facing with my own family. We have travel plans to the Caribbean here in uh, in a week. And, uh, you know, I'm a guy who's about to turn 60, and I've got uh, moderate asthma, and I'm on a steroid <laughs> inhaler. So, uh, you know, I, I'm thinking about this. Um, but, uh, you know, where we're traveling is to uh, a low endemic area. I, I probably would not yet uh, personally uh, forego travel um, to areas that are at the same or lower uh, incidence than what we're experiencing here in the U.S. Um, I, if I 
if I were older and had more chronic medical conditions, I think I'd, I'd think hard about that. Um, I probably would, uh, if, if I had plane tickets to Italy right now, I'd be thinking pretty hard about canceling. Now, uh, I think that all could change within two to four weeks if we start seeing numbers matching those in South Korea and Italy everywhere or in many, many countries. Then I think the sort of travel restrictions, travel bans really don't matter. You're just as likely to be exposed in your own um, neighborhood or city than uh, if you fly somewhere. Also, in other words, if we get more disease here, <laughs> it's probably just as safe to travel. It's <laughs> interesting. I, Pandora's I, I box, think the, right? Yeah. Yeah, the exposure risks are probably going to be similar. And, and uh, you know, these travel restrictions and travel bans, they're, they're a pretty blunt instrument to try yes. and um, uh, control outbreaks. And, and, in fact, most experts don't think that, that those can stop uh, things. The, what we hope for with it is that it will slow them down. Sure. And I think, I think it has done that to some extent. So I think what China did certainly didn't stop it, but it did slow it down, and, and it gives places some time to prepare. But once we see it uh, everywhere, then then travel becomes a moot point. It's not an increased risk, per se. I, you, could, you could make the case that, you know, travel often brings with it congregating in places where there's lots of people. Uh, so uh, that would be the bigger issue, is do I, do I do things that, you know, mix me around with lots and lots of people um, if we're still in the midst of this. It may not be the location that's important, but it may be the, you know, how many people in one place am I going to be exposed to? I, I know in our neighborhood, at least, even the grocery stores, some of them are running out of regular everyday items like toilet paper <laughs> because there are people yeah. who are kind of stocking up to uh, go yeah. off the grid, if you will, for a while. Yeah. Is, it, yeah. is that crazy? Should we be thinking I that? Think am I too late? I think that's crazy. <laughs> I, I, uh, well, I, you know, I, I see our, like, our Costco was completely out of a lot of those, you know, oh my goodness. like, um, you know, toilet paper and bottled water and things like that. Um, I I think, um, you know, it's not unreasonable to kind of like, if uh, you know, think about do, if I wanted to, if, if I had to stay at home and work from home, what do I need, uh, you know, to maybe weather out a couple of weeks or something like that of not, if, if it came to where I had to work from home. But uh, the sort of bunker mentality uh, um, and, you know, Armageddon around the corner, I think, is 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 inappropriate. Paul, um, in our yeah. last minute, what's the... Yeah. What's the best source of information for people who want to keep up to date uh, without the hyperbole? I think a couple of places. Uh, Centers for Disease Control is always a good place to look. Um, I, I actually haven't been uh, uh, as pleased with their you know, number tracking as other places, but they, they're very good for putting out guidance on for all kinds of situations, you know, travel, what schools, um, healthcare workers, etc. Uh, they're very, very good with that. For actually kind of looking at, you know, what's the status around the world, um, I think the World Health Organization's website is really good for that. And actually the European equivalent to the CDC, it's called the EC, ECDC, European Centers for Disease Control. They, they've got re, uh, some very good uh, up-to-date uh, um, epidemiologic information. So I I start my morning now pretty much every day going to the ECDC site, the World Health Organization site. And, uh, right after and prayer. Right, Paul. <laughs> and Paul, so, right, you are right. Um, <laughs> okay, fair enough. You know. Paul Carson, uh, but, uh, <laughs> thank you so much for being with us on Dr. Doctor, especially on short notice for this episode on coronavirus. God bless you, and may you have a great vacation in the Caribbean. Thank you very much. Happy Lent to you guys. And now to complete that fast-moving episode on coronaviruses, we have our medical trivia question, and we have confirmed the veracity of the answer with our expert. We always like to double-check. <laughs> we don't want to be giving you false, uh, no fake news here. So, true or false, over half of the people listening to this have been infected with coronavirus. Dun, 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 dun. And what did Dr. Carson say, Andrew? He said, for sure. For sure. Probably over 90%, close to 100% of people have been infected at some point in their life with a coronavirus, not this coronavirus, COVID-19 disease that we're talking about today. You may have had coronavirus and you don't even know it. Dun, dun, dun. Now, not to be too, too lighthearted about this, but I, I think if we were to summarize kind of our conversation, 
taking reasonable precautions with hand washing, staying at home when you're sick is really what we're called to do. It's probably being a little bit overblown in the media. It will come here at some point. We just got to do our best. Uh, exactly. So, so be reasonable. Don't go out and buy a mask and wear a mask around. Our Surgeon General begged people not to do it because the masks are needed more by the people who are really sick and those who work in hospitals. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. And don't, don't go buy out everything at the grocery store because it's probably overkill also for Dr. Carson. Yes, and he should know. Well, thank you so much for being with us for this uh, special episode of Doctor, doctor, that's who we are. Uh, you've been listening to us, the official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association, coming to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of this show with a friend, invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app, or they can listen at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. That's also where you can find contact information to let us know if there's some kind of topic you'd like to hear about or uh, some kind of story you want to share with us. And be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. Please don't hesitate to give us any ideas. This, this episode was brought to you by suggestions of listeners. So we're, we're excited to respond to, to feedback from you. And thank you for listening. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor. St. John Paul II said, Catholic doctors are called as believers to witness to Christ, effectively helping to eliminate the causes of suffering that humiliate and sadden humankind. The Catholic Medical Association helps Catholic healthcare professionals live out this calling and fully integrate their faith with their practice of medicine as they care for patients. The Catholic Medical Association is open to all medical professionals, clergy, and supporters of Catholic healthcare. For more information, visit cathmed.org.